Good morning. Welcome. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4? It's good to see you today. Nice cool morning. And welcome if you're here for the first time or returning after a long while. Good to see you. And uh, may the Lord bless our time of study in the Word this morning. This morning we're beginning a new chapter in our study of the letter of 1 Timothy and uh, a new section of careful thought and certainly another section inspired by the Holy Spirit for our careful attention. Let's all stand together one more time and um, I'd like to read this section of Scripture with you in unison. Let's all read it together and uh, we will then pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of study. Join me as we read together in unison 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. Now the Spirit expressly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the sincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, You've brought us thus far in the study of 1 Timothy to chapter 4, 1-5. through Thank You that we have before us the inspired, authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, all-consuming all Word of God. We pray that we would be given grace today to take it in, to think carefully on what You have for us today. Thank You that You are speaking to us this morning through this text. That this is not just another exercise of, of intellectual information passing through our ears. But Father, You are speaking to us. We ask by Your Holy Spirit that we would be guided into truth, that You would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of Your law. Father, we ask that we would be convicted of sin, that we would be sorrowful and broken over our, our sin in terms of even our failure to recognize the importance of handling doctrinal error Father, forgive us for taking things that You deem very serious and very sobering so lightly at times. Father, not forgive us for not being in earnest enough that we fall short constantly of who You have called us to be. So we claim Christ. We, we are dressed in His righteousness and we are thankful that You have promised forgiveness through Him and yet, Father, we also long to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the truths that are communicated in this text and to live them out more faithfully. Father, without You, we can do nothing. We need You to do this work in us. And may it be for Your glory in the church. 
We thank You for the ascended Christ who is reigning, who has sent His Spirit to live in us and is working His will through us through that ministry of the Holy Spirit. We pray that He would be glorified in all of this. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The last two weeks, we've taken a good look at the, what we have called the theological apex of this letter. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16. That's really the centerpiece of everything that's going on in the letter of 1 Timothy. And we've learned very clearly, I hope, that our behavior matters. The Apostle Paul writes clearly, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, for you, for the church of Ephesus, so that you would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Our behavior matters because we are those things. By the, by the call of Christ, we are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. And, and our primary role in the world is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. In other words, to hold firm and to hold high the truth by how we behave in what we say and how we act, particularly when it comes to communicating the Gospel. And if we wander from that calling, think about this, if a church, if any local church claims to be an evangelical church that holds the Gospel dear, preaches the Word of God, if we wander from that calling of being the pillar and buttress of the truth, holding firm and holding high the truth of the Gospel, then we, are cease, to, we cease to be the church. Think about that for a moment. That's a serious statement. Isn't it? I mean, a, a church isn't just a group of people that gather and say, I'm a Christian. The church is more than that. Yes, it's Christians who gather, but who gather under God-ordained leadership and for a certain purpose, fulfilling the calling that God has given to them. And that is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We learned that the truth that we are to pillar and buttress is, is the truth of Jesus Christ Himself. Paul spells that out clearly in verse 16. It's a creed. It's an ancient creed, a hymn of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the manifestation of Christ, the vindication of Christ. We've looked at these. The annunciation and proclamation and reception and exaltation of Christ. Paul structures the central truths of Christ that we're to proclaim by those six statements in verse 16. And the essence of those statements is the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. That's primary doctrine. That's what we call primary truth. If you don't believe those truths that are communicated there in verse 16, you're not a Christian. That's, that's what Paul's getting at there. We, we've talked about what those truths mean. It's talking about that, that Jesus is the eternal God made man, the Son of God, Son of Man, the God-Man. And He lived a sinless life. And His sinless life was filled with power and authority demonstrated through the work of the Holy Spirit in His life. He died a substitutionary death, taking on Himself guilt, human guilt and divine wrath for that guilt. He rose with a victorious resurrection. He ascended, intercedes, and is reigning as Lord. And He's coming again in power and glory to punish and reward. That's the Gospel, right? That's the Gospel that, that Paul was communicating there in verse 16. And, and Jesus' redemptive mission is powerfully and successfully unfolding each day in the world. And that's why our behavior matters. 
And that's Paul's point. Our behavior matters because by the gracious power of Christ, we are to live in a way that is fitting with the person and the work and the successful mission of Jesus Christ as it's unfolding in the world. Now, in in chapter 4, Paul takes the apex of this letter. Your behavior matters because of Christ, because of your calling as the pillar and buttress of the truth of Christ. Your behavior matters. And then he takes that truth and he applies it to a specific area of behavior that Paul has already begun to address. He addressed it back in chapter 1 in the life of this church and the life of any church. Since we are the pillar and buttress of the truth, and since our behavior as the church must serve to hold firm and to hold high the truth, then it clearly follows that our behavior with the truth matters. How we behave with that truth. In other words, our handling of doctrine matters. Chapter 3 was mostly about godly character, and now chapter 4 is largely about handling doctrine. Truth matters. Therefore, we must understand apostasy. That's what these first five verses is all about. Understanding apostasy. If I were to put a title on this sermon, that would be it. Understanding apostasy. Now, this isn't a popular topic to talk about. It's, it's It's a controversial issue in the church. People don't like to talk about doctrinal distinctives. It's not practical, right? It's the most practical thing in the world. And so, we must be able to discern the inner workings of apostasy and by God's grace to to protect one another against it. And may the Lord enable us to do so. Think of this, beloved. Because the church is the pillar and ground of truth, it is also always ground zero for doctrinal war. Doesn't that make sense? It always will be. It always has been. It always will be. If a church is seeking to be the pillar and buttress of the truth, each individual member, and working together as a whole, the pillar and buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ, it will be ground zero for doctrinal battle. Because the evil one does not want the truth to be disseminated in any community. When you scatter from here today and you go to your, your own homes and your, and your friends and your neighbors and your lives, the evil one does not want you to proclaim the Gospel clearly and accurately and fully. He doesn't want that to happen. And one of the ways that he seeks to, do, to, to avoid the church or to, to, to distract the church from communicating the truth is by pulling people away from the truth. It's called apostasy. And so that's the main idea that I want to share with you today from this text. I think it's the main idea that Paul puts in this text is simply beware of apostasy. Beware of apostasy. What do we need to know? What do we need to know in order to be aware of apostasy? And there's five points and you can look at your outlines that I've given to you in your bulletin today. What do we need to know? There's five things in this text and we'll see how far we get for today. Number one, the Spirit's warning. Two, the demonic cause. Three, the deceptive teacher. Four, the destructive doctrine. And five, the corrective truth. These five things are what 
the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Paul for us, for the church in Ephesus first, but then ultimately for us as well, to know so that we can beware of apostasy. Let's look at each one of these one by one. Number one, the Spirit's warning. Verse one, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. The first part of the Spirit's warning here is that we need to understand that apostasy is certain. Apostasy is certain because the text says that it will happen. Some will depart. It doesn't say some might. Some will. Some will depart from the faith. It's it's a certain aspect here. The definition of apostasy is spelled out here. Some will depart from the faith. That's the word in the original that we get our English word apostasy from. To depart from the faith. This is an informed, knowledgeable, deliberate, willful, intentional decision on the part of an individual who once professed salvation and once confessed accurately the Gospel. It's a deliberate decision on their part to abandon the objective truths of the Gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament. That's what apostasy is. It's not the same thing as a true believer who has become entangled or confused or is struggling for a time with false teaching. You need to separate those two in your mind. That's not an apostate. Someone who may be, wow, they're, they're really into some... Well, are they a true believer? Maybe they're struggling with some things there and they need some shepherding in, in that confusion. That's not an apostate. A true believer who wanders like a sheep will always be returned by the fold in, to the fold by the Good Shepherd. That's what the Good Shepherd promises. An apostate is someone who was never truly saved though they professed to be and confessed the true Gospel knowledgeably, deliberately, and they they turn away from the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And the Apostle writes here that that will happen. Apostasy is also certain because it's the Spirit's words. You notice that. The Spirit expressly says. It's certain because the Spirit says it. That means that the Holy Spirit is communicating the certainty of apostasy with clarity. He says it expressly, clearly, directly, explicitly. There's no doubt here. You can't miss it. This is a reference to the inspired prophetic revelation of the Holy Spirit who breathed His words through the apostles as they wrote down the Word of God. He warns the church of Jesus Christ that apostasy will happen. We're to be warned by that. This this express warning is given all through the Scripture. Apostasy is nothing new. It's not something that just happens in in this New Testament time. It's in the Old Testament as well. Let me give you a few references to jot down that you can look up sort of a a, a biblical theology, a little bit anyway, of, of apostasy. Ezekiel 16 is a graphic text talking about how God Himself wooed His people Israel to Himself, and then by idolatry, they wander and turn away from Him. They abandon Him for other gods. They make a deliberate decision. 
Matthew 13, 1-23 explains the, the parable of the soils. Those first three soils are all three unbelievers. Matthew 13, 1-23. The first soil is, doesn't even receive the Word, but the second two receive the Word for a time with joy. But there's no spiritual fruit, and therefore there's no true spiritual life. And they're, they're drawn away. They fall away from the faith because of, of persecution or because of the, the deceptiveness of, of the things of this world that they long to enjoy. Beloved, this, this day, with all of the pressure that is on the people of God today, with all that's going on in our world, this is a day when you're going to see more and more apostasy happening. Because it's not comfortable. It's becoming less and less comfortable to be the church in this day. Matthew 13, 1-23. Acts 20, 28. Paul's warning. Remember that? We've looked at that text several times in anticipation of 1 Timothy to understand that, that Paul knew this was going to happen. He prayed with those Ephesian elders and committed them to the, to the Word of the Lord and the Word of His grace and, 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 and said there's going to be some even among you who are going to draw away the disciples after them. That's apostasy. I think of John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus at the beginning of John 6 had, what, 20,000 people He was preaching to? And by the end, how many were left? 11 or 12. And one of those was, was Judas. Judas is an example of apostasy. John 6. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 The Apostle Paul warns us there that before the great day of the Lord comes, there will be a great apostasy that happens. A falling away. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. The apostasy comes first, Paul says. Hebrews 6, 4-6 is not describing a true believer. Hebrews 6, 4-6 is talking about someone who comes into the church, lives there for a while, enjoys the blessings, confesses the Gospel, says they're a believer, and falls away. Deliberately, knowledgeably, intentionally. 2 Peter 2, 1-2 talks about false teachers. Then many will follow them. 2 Peter 2, 1-2. And clearly, the Apostle John, 1 John 2, 18-19, speaks clearly that, they, that some will, will be deceived by demonic spirits and, and they will go out from among us because what? They were not really of us. They were here, but they weren't a true believer. That's an apostate. An apostate is someone who, who professed to be a believer, who understands clearly the Gospel, and confessed that Gospel accurately, but deliberately, knowledgeably says, no, I don't want that anymore. This is the doctrine that I'm going after. And they fall away from the truth because they were never truly saved to begin with. And the Holy Spirit tells us, this is going to happen. And the Holy Spirit tells us not only that it will happen, but when it will happen. Notice the text. It says, in the latter times. What is, when is that? What's the latter times? Well, letter B in your outline there. Apostasy is current. In the latter times is another way of saying the last days, as the Bible says, or another way of saying the last hour. Right? All those are saying the same thing. All three of those phrases in the New Testament are referring to the era of time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. 
1 John 2.18 is an example of that. 1 Peter 1.20, 2 Timothy 3.1. This is the age in which we live. So, dear ones, apostasy is happening when? Now. It's happening now. So the Holy Spirit's warning is clear. Apostasy is certain and it is current. This is not something that we're anticipating will happen in some future day like we feel as we read sometimes in the book of Revelation or Daniel. No, this is not something that that could happen and therefore is potential depending on certain place or time. No, apostasy is happening. It's happening here and it's happening now. It has happened before in our assembly, beloved. Do you realize that? There are people that have come into this very room and sung songs with us and heard the Word with us and made strong profession to know Christ and believe the Gospel and that are now have turned away and knowledgeably have turned away. That's serious. That's very serious. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's happened. And it's going to happen again. It's probably even happening now. So we must beware and be ready through the Holy Spirit's equipment. Beware of apostasy. Will happen. What do we need to know to be aware of apost- beware of apostasy? First of all, we need to know the Spirit's warning. Secondly, this morning, he, he wants us, the Spirit of God wants us to know the demonic cause. Notice in the text. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to what? Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits. Teachings of demons. What causes apostasy? Notice the first aspect related to the demonic cause that the Holy Spirit addresses here in verse 1, letter A, human devotion. You see that, devoting themselves. Some, the some, right? They will devote themselves to something other than the truth. When the Holy Spirit says that little word by, right? Right there, the word by, He's telling us how. He's explaining the cause. He's giving us the the reason for this happening. Apostasy happens by the some, men, women, young people, devoting themselves to something. And, And therefore, we look at that something and notice again the deliberation that is here. They devote themselves to something. There's an informed decision. The person has heard and understood the truth and heard and understood the error and the choices that they, they make is to devote themselves to the error, calling it truth. They devote themselves to it. It's a very picturesque word actually. The word devoting means to bring near illustra- illustratively by a ship coming near to a dock and onloading what's coming from the dock and filling up the ship with it, right? And, and so that's really what you see with an apostate. They, they, they dock up against a, 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 the different teaching and they load their mind with it. 
They, they give their mind to it. They turn to it. They, they're attentive to it. They take heed. They, they're applying themselves to something other than the truth of the New Testament, the true Gospel of Jesus Christ. They attach themselves. They hold tightly. They give much thought and effort to something. There is no such thing as accidental apostasy. That will encourage you on one le- level, but warn you on another. Watch yourself. Right? Apostasy happens by human devotion. You give your attention to it. And what is it that they are devoting themselves to? This sum. They're devoting themselves, letter B, to demonic discipleship. The text says, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is what those who apostatize devote themselves to, whether they realize it or not. Probably most don't realize it, but here it is. This is what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Two very important aspects to this verse that each one of us must understand clearly. And they are a vital part of this warning. First, the text is saying that any religious teaching that opposes or contradicts the clear fundamental teaching of the New Testament is from whom? It's from demons. Let that grip you, dear ones. It's from Satan. Any pagan, whether it's pagan or sophisticated religious teaching, anything that contradicts the clearly revealed nature of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the nature of man, the way of salvation as revealed in the Bible by the Holy Spirit, if it contradicts it, where does it come from? It comes from demons. And they don't want our good. The number one source of all religious doctrine that opposes the Gospel of Jesus Christ is demonic. We have to get Satan and demons right here, beloved. They are not little scary monsters running around with disgusting costumes on. That's not what they are. These are master deceivers prowling around seeking someone to devour. And listen, their number one tool of pulling people to hell is what? Religious teaching. This is all through the New Testament. We have to get more serious, beloved, about the differences between what is communicated as the way to eternal life around the world. Because there's only one Truth when it comes to who God is and the way of salvation. And guess where all the rest comes from? Demons. We've got to take this seriously. It doesn't matter if the doctrine that is discussed is from voodoo or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or, or the prosperity gospel or, or New Age or Roman Catholicism or humanism or atheism or, or any other religious organization. It doesn't matter if the teaching that, that is brought is contradictory to the New Testament's teaching on the nature of God, man, the way of salvation, or, or any other clear fundamental doctrine. It's from demons. If a teaching that contradicts the true Gospel begins to be taught in our assembly as it had in the Ephesian assembly, and it contradicts the New Testament. Where is it from? It's from demons. Right here. Demons would 
would love nothing more than for our assembly to be, to be filled with their teachings and not the Word of God. Don't think it can't happen here. Don't think it, it happened in Ephesus. Uh, the church that was planted by the Apostle Paul. Right? If anyone got church planting right, it was the Apostle Paul. If anyone got doctrine right, it was he. And yet, demonic teaching became part of what they were learning. The source of all false teaching is demons. That is what this text says clearly. That understanding ought to really sober us. It will help us not to play around with or, or take lightly false teachings that are propagated by demons, however innocent they may seem. I want to give you three texts to look up as well. I'm not going to take the time to go through all these. 1 Corinthians 10, 19-21 is a supporting text that shows you pagan religion. It comes from demons. Two others that any false Doctrine comes from demons. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Comes from demons. Secondly, please understand that the teaching of demons is deceptive. As we have to get this as well. Very important. The doctrine of demons is not repulsive to the natural desires of man. They're going to craft the most attractive doctrine. To the natural man. It comes well dressed and appealing to natural human nature, natural human desires. The text says that the teaching of demons is deceitful. It is deceitful. Every false teaching, beloved, deceives its followers by, I think, one of two or both appealing principles. Here's the root. And we're going to look at this with examples later on. Every false doctrine, every false teaching that, that comes from demons will appeal to the natural human man, one, by the principle of self-righteousness, okay, self-righteousness, or two, by the principle of worldly sensual gratification. Demons tempt the natural man to think. Here's the principle of self-righteousness that undergirds demonic doctrine all around the world. Demons tempt the natural man to think that he can earn the favor of God by what he does or does not do following a path of religion. Telling him he can be good enough. That he can be better or more spiritual than other people. That's self-righteousness. And it looks very religious. And it appeals to the natural man. But listen, dear ones, it's a lie that leads to hell. You can't earn God's favor with anything you do or don't do. You cannot please God and depend on self-righteousness. And it's appealing it's appealing to the natural man. The second principle, demons tempt the natural man to think that he can get what he will that he can get what will satisfy him from this world. 
The sensual desires of the world, what what looks good, feels good, uh, brings me the praise of other people, just by following a path of religion, telling Him that God will give you what you want if you give this or pray that, again, it's a lie that leads to hell. That's not the Gospel. God will not be bartered with, beloved. He will not become your slave to give you the world if you just pray this way or say that phrase or do this ritual. Do you realize how similar so many modern religions and cults are to the ancient pagan practices of idol worship described in the Old Testament? We here in our sophisticated religious environment, in Western religion, we think, oh man, bowing down to some carved image is ridiculous. Who would ever do that? Oh, dear ones, listen, idolatry, what is idolatry at its core? It's do or don't do something to appease your God so that your God will be moved to give you what you want. That's idolatry. You do or don't do something to appease your God so that your God will give you what you want. That's modern religion. Right? That's modern cults. Do or don't do something to win the favor of God the Father or Jesus Christ so that they'll be moved to give you what you want. It's all the same doctrine, just dressed up with a bit more subtlety, but it's not New Testament Christianity. They're all founded upon one of those two or both of those things. Self-righteousness or worldly sensual gratification. And it's all dressed in religious garb. It's all there. Look deeper, beloved. Please, you've got to see that. It's all from demons. Demons are the source of the deceptive teaching that causes people to apostatize today in our community and even in our church. I could tell you stories about people who came to our church, sat here among us, and and met with me for, for counseling and discipleship and then bumped up against that hard truth that says Jesus will not give you what you want in this earth if He doesn't see that it's for your good. And they're like, "All right, if God's not going to give me that, I'm not interested in following Him anymore. And they're gone. It's it's apostasy. Right? Beware of it. Beware of apostasy. What do we need to know in order to beware of apostasy? First, we need to understand the Spirit's warning Second, we need to realize the deceptive the demonic cause. And third, the deceptive teacher. This is the third thing that Paul has for us. The deceptive teacher. I know this is some intense teaching here, right? I don't have any jokes to spill in with this, all right? Beloved, this is serious for us. Let's keep going, okay? Hang in there. This, this, is, this is intense because this, this is life and death, isn't it? This is eternal things here that we all need to be aware of and careful for. The deceptive teacher, verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Most of the time, the teaching that demons use to lure people away from the truth does not come directly to a person from a demon. It's not like he's going to show up typically in your bedroom and tell you you need to believe this or that. Usually the demon uses another person. 
And that makes the teaching all the more dangerous and deceptive. The demonic teaching that causes apostasy comes through someone. Comes through someone. You see that? Through. By (laughs) the discipleship of demons, but through an individual. It explains the means that demons use to cause apostasy. So what kind of people the demons use to propagate their deceptive teaching. And there are three descriptors in this text. Do you see them? Insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So you see those three points in your outline there. Insincere, liars, seared conscience. That's the kind of person that demons use to propagate their teaching. Insincere, what does that word mean? Well, that's the classic New Testament word for hypocrisy. These men and women wear religious masks to hide who they really are and what they really are. They present themselves as moral leaders, trusted professors, pious priests, caring pastors. You can find them in church gatherings. You can find them at schools. In colleges, universities, seminaries, community functions. You will see them giving to the needy, promoting morality, holding Bibles, fighting for the poor and oppressed, wearing holy robes, dressed in professional clothes. But it's insincere. It's a show, it's a mask, it's hypocrisy. You might never guess it until. You hear the doctrine that they teach and how their doctrine contradicts the fundamental truths of the gospel. Then you know, beloved. You see how dangerous this is? You could get a pastor in your church and he's so nice. And he's he's helping so many people. And he's so much fun to be around. And then... And he's leading so many community functions. It's just a great time for all. But when you hear him teach, something there clearly contradicts the Gospel of the New Testament. And you think, man, no, it can't be. He's just way too nice. That's how it works. That is how it works, beloved. The test of truth is the revealing factor. They do not do themselves even what they demand of their followers. They're hypocrites. right? They, they do not truly live in the way that they present themselves before the eyes of men. They, they don't do what they demand of other people. They have one public life and another private life. That's what Apostle Paul talks about here. Peter says it elsewhere. Secondly, Paul says that they're liars. There is nothing complicated about this word. It is what it is. They're liars. These men and women who teach demonic doctrine and wear a mask of religion are liars. They've been lied to by others and they are propagating the lie that they've been told and and brought into and are bringing many others to follow them in that same lie. That's the way they are. And the way that Paul writes here seems to imply that in many cases, they know that they're lying. That's that's what it seems to indicate here. 
oftentimes people ask that question, does this or that false teacher, do they even know that that's who they are? Are they just totally sold in it? Sometimes, sometimes they know. They're liars. And they keep right on lying because they enjoy what it brings to them in this life. The power they have over other people. The wealth that they enjoy. The praise from other people. A sense of self-righteousness and worldly gratification. And if some false teachers no longer realize that they're lying, it's only because they have been so deceived themselves that they can't tell the difference anymore between truth and error. Beloved, that is a dangerous place to be. Not being able to tell the difference. But that doesn't make their lives any less sinful or dangerous. Thirdly, Paul says that their consciences have been seared. Consciences have been seared. Paul's intention here is to say that their consciences have been cauterized. That's, that's a really picturesque word, right? In fact, he uses the very same Greek word from which we get our English word to cauterize something. And what does that mean when you cauterize something? What does that mean? It means it's been made insensible to stimuli. Cauterized flesh has had its nerve endings burned and therefore can't feel. Paul means to say that the conscience of the false teacher can no longer discern right from wrong, truth from error. That's not the kind of teacher you want to be under. Their consciences have been anesthetized and deadened. They don't work anymore. According to Romans 2, 14-16, the conscience has been created by God and placed within everyone to witness the truth and holiness of the law of God. To witness to the truth and holiness of God's law. When it's working properly, it accuses men, women, boys, and girls when that law is violated. And it excuses them when they obey the law of God. It says, yeah, good job. (laughs) When it's violated, it says, whoa, stop, wrong direction. The conscience is a gift from God. But the Word of God makes it clear that the conscience can become misinformed. right? It can, it can excuse you or accuse you when it shouldn't. Therefore, the conscience has to be informed by the Scriptures. We'll talk about that later on. And even worse, the conscience can also become, like this text says, seared. Rendered insensible. That's the condition of the conscience of the false teacher. He or she has pushed and pushed and pushed against and violated the truth of the Word of God so many times that their conscience doesn't even register error anymore. And they've broken and dismissed God's holy law so many times that their conscience doesn't even twitch anymore when they violate God's law. They just go for it. And that kind of person becomes the perfect vessel through whom Satan and demons can spread their lies because that person will be held entirely in the sway of the evil one. No conscience to say otherwise. And that kind of person calls lies the truth and calls evil what? Good. Do we see that in our culture today? All over the place. It's amazing how hard people fight to promote evil as if it's good. Why? Their conscience is seared. This is the false teacher. They're insincere. They're liars whose consciences are seared. 
And these men and women lead many astray. Many people astray from the truth in the lives of immorality and ultimately to hell. Beloved, we have to beware of apostasy. What do we need to know in order to beware of apostasy? We need to know the Spirit's warning. We need to know the deceptive teacher. We're going to look at the fourth and fifth points next week. There's a lot more to talk about here in and this second part, we're going to look at the destructive doctrine and the corrective truth. That's going to take some time, and I don't want to rush through that. But I want to close our time together today simply with one, really one admonition for you, both for, for God's people and, and you if you're here, if, if you don't know the Lord. Let me just ask this question. Have you given yourself to doctrines of self-righteousness? You know, you may, you may be listening to, to this passage and, and we'll talk more about this next week, but self-righteousness is not a benign doctrine. There are most of the people, in fact, I, I could say it this way, you can take every religion, every religious group, and divide them up into one of two camps of thought. The religion of do and don't, or the religion of it's already been done for you through Jesus Christ. You can fit every religion into one of those two. And what this text warns us of is doctrines of self-righteousness. Beloved, listen, dear friend, do you have any doctrine in your way of salvation that you have at work in yourself that says there's something that I have to do. I have to keep doing this. Or I, I can't do this. I, it's, it's, I've got to perform well enough in order to earn favor with God. Do you think that about any part of your way of salvation? I would encourage you today to turn to turn from that self-righteousness and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ because He has done salvation for you. Trust in Him alone. He, that's why He lived a perfect life of righteousness. You see, here's what salvation is all about. Jesus' obedience earned eternal life. He lived a life of perfect obedience. His perfect obedience earned eternal life, right? He kept all of God's laws every day of His earthly life he earned eternal life. But you and I, our lives of disobedience have earned death. And that's sealed. Right? If we, can, if we continue in that life, it's sealed. And, and what good is it going to do if we try to tack on a little bit of obedience after a life of un disobedience? We're still going to earn death because even our obedience is disobedience to God because... It's done in our own strength and for our own glory. We'll talk more about that later next week. So what salvation is all about is trusting in Christ and receiving His perfect obedience to cover your sin and receiving the eternal life that He earned. And, and He receives from you your disobedience and the death that you earned. And He absorbs that for you on the cross. The wrath of God. The death that you deserve. And He counts you 
as perfectly righteous and an heir of eternal life. You cannot earn God's favor by what you do and don't do only through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you have been trusting in some self-righteousness, would you turn to Christ today and trust in Him? And brothers and sisters in Christ who have turned from self-righteousness and, and turned from your sin and you're, you're continuing by God's grace to live in faith toward Christ, let's not be distracted by the grace of God. It's so easy. It's so, it's so subtle to, to want to just ease back over into a life of self-righteousness once again. Isn't it? It's too easy. The longer you grow in the Christian life, the more you find how many ways you keep trusting in yourself in so many areas of life. May the Lord enable us to keep our eyes on Christ and, and keep trusting in Him and, and not begin to depend on ourselves to, to please God and to earn His favor. Christ is a sufficient Savior. Would you stand and pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, as we, as we work our way through this text about apostasy, again, we, we confess to You that we have taken these things far too lightly. Part of the reason, probably, Father, is because we we're so earthly-minded. We think, wow, if that organization does some good here for some people, what's the harm? Father, and you would answer us, what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Father, help us. Help us to truly see how serious the war of truth is. To know your warning and the demonic source and the deceptive teachers that are, that are all over. Father, please give us discernment and wisdom. And I pray that You would convict the religious unbeliever this morning of dependence on their own self-righteousness. I pray that You would help them to see that that you do not receive human righteousness as a payment for eternal life, but only the righteousness of Christ. May they turn from self-righteousness to, to Christ's righteousness. Give them that understanding. Help them to see that and be comforted in the righteousness of Christ. Indeed, Christ is the end of the law for salvation to all who believe. And I pray that you would guard our hearts, Father, from doctrines of self-righteousness. It's the number one way that apostasy pulls us away. Guard our hearts. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ. And to be able to rejoice in the grace that you have shown us. Protect our people, Father. Protect the people of our church, our, our children, from apostasy. There's so many that grow up in the church and then face the education of, of the world and not have the doctrinal grounding, the true 
the true gospel grounding them to be able to discern truth from error. Father, let us teach our children well. Use us, Father, and would you preserve them, keep them, sanctify them, save them. And um, Father, may it be for your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.